0: Turn your Bibles this morning to 2 Peter. We are continuing in our study of that short epistle. We are on the final stretch. Uh, I want to read to you the passage that I'm going to speak from this morning. It's going to be focused on verses 5 through 9. But... I'm gonna read beginning in verse one, even though we covered some of this last week. Verses one through nine of Second Peter chapter three. Second Peter chapter three. Peter says this to these scattered believers throughout Asia Minor. He says this, this is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance." In this passage, in this third chapter of 2 Peter, we are talking about the return of Jesus Christ and the accompanying judgment that will come with that return. Notice in verse four, he says, what is the promise of his coming? That's what we're talking about. That's what the false teachers are saying. Where is he? Where is he? Where is he coming? When is he coming? Uh, then you go down to verse 7. I just read, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for that day of judgment. There's a second coming associated with that second coming. is going to be a judgment. And then you go down to verse 10. I didn't read this one, but look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord This is 2 Peter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Talk about global warming. I mean, that's global incineration. That is God's view of this planet, really. It's a disposable planet. I mean, He is going to completely one day destroy it, a new heavens, a new earth one day. But that is the judgment that will come. It will be a time of judging the world, ungodly men, ungodly women. This was written, this letter was written about 35 years after the ascension of Christ. And these believers have been going through persecution. They've been experiencing uh, being ostracized from their own families. They've been under persecution by the government, and they're starting to wonder, when is Jesus going to come back? They assumed he would come back in their lifetime. When he left, he said he would come back. They thought it was going to be in their lifetime, but they have not seen him, and they're starting to wonder, and they're starting to question, why hasn't he returned? And how can they have assurance? And that's what Peter does in this chapter. How can they have assurance that he is coming back? How can they have assurance in light of what they are experiencing with these false teachers who are coming around and saying, oh, you've been misled, he's not coming back. How can they uh, be assured with their own The intensity of the persecution that they're going through—they're under Nero as the guy at the time in the Roman Empire—and that was an intense persecution. How can they? How can they be assured that he is going to come back, though they see no evidence that that's happening or going to happen? How can they answer these questions and this mocking that we talked about last week? This mocking by the false teachers. You're so anti-intellectual to believe something like that. You, to, believe, to believe that message from these apostles, you're just being misled. How can you believe in His coming? It's ridiculous. And so Peter gives some ways that we, we can assure ourselves and can, he can assure in this setting these believers as well. And he gives Three assurances I want to look at if we have time this morning. And I'm going to borrow the word remember because they're reminders. The first one is going to be remember remember God's word. Just remember God's word. We've talked about that last week. That's in verse 2. And then we're going to say today we're going to continue with remember God's work in the past. That's verses 3 through 7. And then verses 8 and 9, remember God's unchanging nature. These are things you must remember. These are assurances that give you certainty. So let's start with the first one. This is just a little review here. This is now, verse one, this is now beloved. He loves these folks. The second letter, the first we believe to be 1 Peter. I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind. I'm, I'm making you think of something. I'm making you alert to something. You have a sincere mind. It's not like the hypocritical mind of the false teachers. I'm stirring up your mind. I'm doing that by bringing these reminders to you. The first reminder is verse 2 that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Remember the Old Testament and New Testament. Remember the scriptures. Remember the sure word of God. Remember the God breathed words spoken by the prophets being spoken to you by the apostles. Remember those words. I told you last time in the Old Testament there are 330 prophecies about the coming of Christ. 109 of those were fulfilled at his first coming, but 224 prophecies are yet to be fulfilled regarding his second coming. The major emphasis regarding the coming of Christ in the Old Testament is the second coming. I heard John MacArthur say recently that the book of Zechariah is so key in the Old Testament to our understanding of the second coming of Christ. I read to you some passages from that last week, but that's like the revelation of the Old Testament, the book of Revelation of the Old Testament, he says you need to master Zach, books like Zechariah to really understand the second coming of Jesus. And maybe we'll have time to look at that before we leave this, leave, uh, this, past, this uh, section of Second Peter in coming weeks, but that's the Old Testament. Those are prophecies from the Old Testament that speak of his second coming. The New Testament uh, is filled with passages regarding the second coming of Christ. 21 times Jesus talks about it. One out of every 25 verses refers to it. It's a major emphasis, a major theme of the New Testament. Flip over to Matthew 24 just for a moment. This is a scene in which Jesus is speaking in Matthew 24. It's a scene that's going to take place near his crucifixion. It's called the Olivet Discourse. It's called that because he's speaking from the Mount of Olives. Matthew 24 and I just read these verses to you. They've just been, he's been asked this question up in verse 3, tell us about the signs of your coming. And he goes through basically a historical overview in this chapter through the time of the great tribulation and all the horrors that will take place during that time, which is spoken to us in, in the book of Revelation. But in verse 29, this is what Jesus says of Matthew chapter 24. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Your first assurance of his certainty, of his coming, is the Bible. Remember the Scriptures. Remember the Old Testament. Remember the New Testament. In the scriptures, we have the sure word of God. We're told in Psalm 19 that the scriptures can restore our soul. The scriptures are our counselor. The scripture makes makes the simple wise. The scripture is true. The scripture rejoices the heart. You folks, as you wait for his second coming, you look to the scriptures. You look to the scriptures. The second assurance we see beginning in verse 3, remember the works of God in the past. This was brought on, this explanation was brought on by the comments of verse 3 and 4. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers, I'm sorry, do I have you back in 2 Peter 3? You probably figured that out. Back to 2 Peter 3, know this first of all, in verse 3, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust. These false teachers, who we are, the whole theme of the book of, of uh, Second Peter has been a warning about the false teachers and preparing for the false teachers that are going to come on the scene and that are starting to come on the scene. He says, these are the ones Jesus warned you about. Beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. They're arriving on the scene, and they're the mockers we're talking about here in verse 3. These men mock the second coming uh, they're follow- and here's their agenda, and I want to just highlight this you because this is so important. This is their agenda. They are following after their own lust. You see that at the end of verse three. That is their agenda. Listen, if you do not like a God who judges, then you do away with that God who judges. And you invent a God you like. You invent a, you invent a theology you like. You deny the truth. We're seeing that played out in our culture all the time. You deny what the church, the Bible teaches because it's not comfortable to my lifestyle. It doesn't affirm the way I'm living. Therefore, I don't like it. Therefore, discredit the church. Therefore, discredit the Bible, discredit Christ, discredit God. Rewrite it, come up with a theology that you're comfortable with. That is the the mantra of our day. A God you can like and who likes you rather than the God of the Bible. They follow after their own lust. They find teachers who will encourage them in their own lust. They find doctrines and theologies that accommodate their lifestyle. And since the God says he will judge their immorality, they simply do not They deny it, and they mock it. They have no problem with a baby born in the manger named Jesus, but they don't like that baby growing up to become the king who judges. And so they discredit it. They mock it. Where is the promise of his coming? That's their sneer. Where is the promise of his coming? Verse 4. And what they're saying in these verses is God does not operate like that. This doctrine of God coming and doing all of these cataclysmic changes to the universe and God coming in judgment and all of these things that the Bible says cannot be true because God doesn't do that. Uniformatism, it's the idea that He's never done that before, therefore he's not going to do that in the future. That's what they're teaching. We've never observed God doing that, therefore God is never going to do that. Their argument is going to be the present determines what the past was like. You look at the present, that tells you that it's always been uniform. It's always been this way. And so they say you're ridiculous for thinking that it's going to be any different. You see that in verse 4. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Nothing's changed. The natural order has always been there. God has never interfered with the natural order. It's ridiculous for you to believe in the end of history there's going to be this catastrophic judgment at the return of Christ. That's never, No record of it. We've never seen it happen. It never will. That's And that's intimidating. Intellectuals try to intimidate you with these arguments. That's how these people felt. You felt that at times. They mock you for believing something as outdated as the judgment and the return of Christ. And so they need encouragement in this. And and he says, remember, remember the work of God in the past. Remember what he has done in the past. And that brings us to verse five. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. In verse six, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. He goes back into the scripture, into to, to the history in the Old Testament. He says, oh they, don't, they, they willfully overlook this, that God has done catastrophic things in the past, that God has invaded our box in the past. God has done supernatural things in the past. They fail, as Martin Lloyd-Jones says in his commentary, they fail to recognize the power of God. and what he has done in the past. Peter is saying here in verse three, they're wrong. They're arrogant, they're smug, and they're mocking, but they're wrong. God has done that. They just choose to ignore two great events, creation and the flood. And both are found in the book of Genesis. And they don't look to the Bible. You and I might say, look at this, creation flood in the Bible. They don't look to the scriptures. Their minds are darkened. They cannot even understand the Spirit of God, the things of the Spirit. The natural man doesn't even receive the things of the Spirit. If it cannot be proved in a laboratory, it must not be true. That's their approach. Anything miraculous or beyond the norm cannot be accepted. They're they're different from you and I. Their perspective is what they can observe, our perspective is divine revelation. Divine revelation. Christianity is revealed truth. When we talk about Christianity, we're not talking about a man-made religion. We're talking about words from God. He is the one that has revealed truth to us. He invaded the box. He has given us his word He has given us his son, invading the box to reveal himself to us. They are limited by their observation. They're they're limited to life within the box. And they can only see what's in the box. Our view comes from what's revealed. I don't have to observe something to believe it. Hebrews eleven three. 3. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Think about that verse. By faith, the eyes of faith, the faith that God gives me and you as believers, opens my eyes to the truthfulness of his word. Nobody was there. Nobody was there in the beginning except God. For them, seeing is believing. For us, believing is seeing. You see the difference? Big difference. Believing is seeing. It says here in verse 5 that the, the worlds were created. Um, created by the word of God. God created the, created the worlds by the word of God, by his word. divine fiat he spoke it he spoke it into existence Uh, he was a creationist by the way peter was a creationist it's not a process over millions of years it's none of that god spoke it spoke the universe into existence Turn to Psalm 33. Hold your hand there in 2nd Peter. Turn to Psalm 33 verse 6. Psalm 33 verse 6. Psalm 33 verse 6. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made. There it is. The word of the Lord the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth all their host Verse 7. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Notice, for he spoke, verse 9. And it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. You know, the reason we say we call it a God breathed book is because God spoke it. Just like he did in creation. He spoke it. He spoke it. He spoke the universe, six days of created creative power of God and the mockers of Christ's day, the, of uh, Peter's day, the mockers of today, they would say it's something else. It's not divine fiat, it's not God creating, it's evolution or something else. The eternality of the universe There's something that's always been here, whatever they want to say. And so Peter's point is, the same God who created the world by the Word can intervene in the world at any time, and we cannot overlook His power. So just because I haven't observed it does not mean it hasn't or won't happen. The return of Christ, just because I haven't seen it, or can prove it in a laboratory does not mean that he won't return. Because we have the world, we have the word of God, just like he created the world. And, and that's, what, um, that's what God said to Job, by the way, in his self-righteous moments. Were you there? Do you know? Were you there when I made the world? To which Job admits, I really don't know as much as I thought I knew. There was nothing that existed, He spoke it. He spoke it into existence. Regardless of what the mockers say, how it happened, and what they come up with and their theories as to how it happened, God spoke it. Verse five says, the earth was formed out of water and by water. We're back in 2 Peter three, but now we're going to Genesis chapter one. So keep holding on to 2 Peter 3, go to Genesis chapter 1. Let me just show you this. And the reason I highlight this in verse 5 of 2 Peter 3 is the statement, the earth was formed out of water and by water. And the the significance of him mentioning that is because of what follows in verse 6. But let me just read this to you in Genesis 1, 1. He specifies that the earth was formed out of water and by water. God created everything, verse 1 of Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, even the water. Then in verse 2 of Genesis 1, the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. So there's waters over the surface, And then you go to verse 6, on the second and third days of creation, in verse 6 of Genesis chapter 1, God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning, a second day. Verse 9, third day, then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear and it was so. And so you have waters. Back to 2 Peter. In 2 Peter, he's referring to the waters. You have some waters that are elevated above the atmosphere, moisture, uh, a canopy is what is believed that covered the earth at one time a water above, a transparent greenhouse effect possibly, and he took the waters and separated them. You have waters on the surface and waters above. And it's important that Peter mention this about the waters because that brings him to the next point because the water from the sky above is going to be used once again for God to break into history. You see that? Go back to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 6. 2 Peter 3, verse 6, through which the world at that time was destroyed. Destroyed by what? The water. He highlights the water of days 2 and 3 and the separation of those waters because those waters were going to be used in this cataclysmic event called the flood. You see that in verse 6, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. He used the water to do that. Some people misunderstand the flood. They just think it rained for 40 days, 40 nights. They think it, just, it was all about rain. Surely there was rain, but it was more than just rain. Let me read to you Genesis seven eleven. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky opened. I mean, you had water coming out of the earth and you had water coming from the heavens. That was the cataclysmic flood. And God broke into the natural order of things to judge the world. Hey, hey, mockers, there is history here. There is something you're forgetting. There is something you're denying. God miraculously created the world. He spoke it into existence. And then he brought about this flood to judge humanity in the days of Noah. Can you imagine the mocking that Noah went through for 120 years as he built an ark about an event that no one believed? What's he talking about? Water, rain, Flood. What are we talking about? They mocked him just like people today or people in Peter's day were being mocked for talking about judgment and just like we're mocked when we talk about judgment. Mocking. God has never done this before. Never reigned Never experienced a flood in the past. Let me read this to you in Genesis 7:23. Thus God blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth, and only Noah was left together with those that were with him in the ark. That is what Peter wants to remind his readers about. that mockers are wrong. God did, in the past, judge the world. Listen to Matthew 24, 37. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Just like the days of Noah. People were being mocked. Noah's being mocked by people for believing in judgment. We're going to be mocked for believing in God's judgment but it also means people were just carrying on life as normal, getting married, doing their daily activities. Verse 38 says, For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that God, that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. It'll be just like that. That's the reason it's called like a thief. You just don't know. Suddenly comes that judgment. Doing the normal things. They were wrong in Noah's day. And they willfully ignore these mockers in Peter's day. Willfully ignore that. You know, it's ironic to me that the LGBTQT—if I've got those initials right—movement, choose, they choose to live in rebellion to God, but they use the symbol, the symbol, the rainbow. They use the rainbow, which is a promise by God that He will not judge the earth by a flood again. But it is a reminder, folks, of this: He does judge. He does judge and it will not be a flood next time. We're told in verse 10 of Second Peter chapter 3, it will be by fire. He will destroy everything. Peter says he did it, and he will do it again. It will look different. Verse 7 says, but by... Go back to... Are you in 2 Peter? Chapter 3, verse 7. But by his word, the present heavens... And earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. It's the day of the Lord is referred to in verse 10. I'm really not looking at that verse this morning, but that's called the day of the Lord. Um, In verse 7, kept for the day of judgment, day of the Lord, it's a a term that's used in the Bible of a, a period of, I believe it's a time period. I believe it's a day of God's judgment. It will come like a thief, 3.10 of 2 Peter says, when God will directly deal with mankind, he will intervene. Right now is the day of salvation. Right now. Right now. He is preserving, verse 7 of 2 Peter 3 says, he is the present heavens and earth are being reserved for that time. Kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. God will be vindicated. God will be glorified in that. God will uphold his righteousness and his holiness. And he will bring vengeance to all who oppose him. The day of the Lord, I believe there are several events that occurred during that time. I'm not going to talk about all of these this morning, but I believe in that time you have the rapture of the church, the seven-year tribulation, the return of Christ, the great white throne judgment. You can read about that great white throne judgment where all the people of the earth, unbelievers, are brought before him, books are opened, and people are cast into the lake of fire. That's in the end. It's in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11. And 12. At that time, he will be judge. He came the first time in humility. He came the first time to be the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He came the first time, compassion. That is not how he will return. Today is the day of salvation. You don't have to stand at that throne one day and be condemned. You don't have to stand with the judgment of God hanging over you. You can repent and turn to Christ. He will be your ark. He will be your shield from the wrath of God. That's what he promises to all who believe in him and trust in him. Salvation is not just praying a prayer because life is hard. Salvation is praying a prayer to be saved from the penalty of your of your sin. Understand that. The word salvation, the word salvation means to be saved from God's wrath. Salvation is about being protected and saved and delivered from the wrath of God. God sent Jesus to save you from God's own wrath. We use the word salvation. Saved from what? You're saved from the wrath of God. Not a hard life. Your life might get harder. But we're saved from the wrath of God, redemption. That's so important to understand that. Have you been saved? Saved from what? Answer the question. Saved from the judgment and penalty of my sin, the wrath of God. Jesus came to save you from God. That's why he came. There's still a nagging question, though. There's still a nagging question in the mind of of Peter's readers, back in Second Peter, chapter three. There's still this nagging question. Okay, okay. Remember the word of God. Remember the scriptures, Old Testament, and the the processed new testament remember that remember the works of god in the past yes we, we do that that can encourage us and give certainty in our thinking in our minds to the second coming of christ he's done this before and now and now there's still a nagging question where is the promise of his coming where is it? If Jesus is coming back, why hasn't He come back yet? We have been waiting. Get this, thirty-five years. I can only read that and think to myself, it's been two thousand for us, two thousand years, and they're asking, still asking the question, where is He? where is he? you know some of the new testament writers would write like that the time is near or james 5 therefore be patient brethren until the coming of the lord hebrews 10:37 for yet in a very little while he who is coming will come and will not delay Last days began at the first coming of Christ and will end at the second coming of Christ. That's the period of the last days. We're in the last days. We've been in the last days since Peter wrote verse 3, in the last days. And so how are you going to answer that one, Peter? Certainty when we've been waiting for such a long time. I mean, I understand this statement. Sometimes I get up and pray that prayer and say, God, when are you coming back? Don't you see the mess this place is in? Don't you see that? And you can get discouraged and you see the world getting worse and worse. And so what does Peter say? Notice in verse 8. Remember God's unchanging nature. That's how I would title this Remember God's unchanging nature. Remember God's attributes. Re- remember God's character, whatever. But remember this about God. Verse 8, two things he wants us to remember about God. Verse 8, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that, the Lord, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. Hmm. What he's talking about there is God's relationship to time. The passing years might discourage us as we see things getting worse, but God's view of time, Peter is saying, is different from ours. We are finite, He is infinite. We are limited by time. We look at the clock, He doesn't. And what would take man a thousand years to do, God could do in a day. God may take a thousand years to do what you think He could do in one day. Just think about that. He is outside of time, He is eternal. He, he looks at everything against the backdrop of eternity. He, he understands time. He created time. But he's above time. Some people have misinterpreted this verse. This is interesting. I've heard this said many times. They have read it to say, well, now, interesting. If you go back to the book of Genesis 1 and 2, where we have been taught that God created the heavens and the earth in six literal days, actually that should be interpreted 6,000 days. Are you following me on that? Because of that verse saying that with the Lord one day is like a 1,000 years and 1,000 years like one day, they are saying, well, God must mean it took 6,000, 6,000 days, 6,000 years, to create the world. That's not what it says. That verse is not saying, that verse is not saying one day is a thousand years. It says it's like a thousand years. It's a comparison. It's just a long time. He could have said a million years. It's like a million years. It doesn't matter. It's just to emphasize the fact that God is outside of time. He does not look at time the way you and I look at it. That is the point of those verses. It's not giving us a formula for Bible interpretation on days. It has nothing to do with the creation account in Genesis. And I'll tell you what else this verse does not mean. This verse does not mean that God does not work in time. He does work in time. Galatians 4.4 But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. You understand that? Jesus was born on schedule. Jesus was born at the right time, the fullness of time. God is never late. God is never tardy. That is what Peter is trying to emphasize to these folks. He's not late. He's not tardy. He's not, verse 9, slow about his promise, as some count slowness. 2 Peter 3, 9. God is outside of time, but he works in time. Psalm 139. um, My days were numbered. My days were ordained before there was yet one of them. He knew about me before I was born. He knew my birthday. He knew the day I would be born. He's appointed unto man once to die, but after this comes the judgment. He knows my day of death. It's interesting to me how Jesus says over and over in the book of John, how my time has not yet come. Remember, they were always trying to arrest him or catch him or do something to Jesus, and he says, my time is not yet. At the right time, I'll be delivered up. There was a time. He was on a time schedule, he submitted to a time schedule in his ministry. So God is outside of time. God is not confined by time. God is eternal. Everything he looks at, he looks through this backdrop of eternity. But yet he, it's meaningful to him. Time is meaningful to him because he operates in time. So we can't confine him to our time, as Peter's points. He does not experience time like we do. So you can't say, well, it's been 2,000 years. It's just too long. No, that's not accurate. That's not accurate. Because God views 1,000 years and one day the same. The eternal God, no end, no beginning. I can't think like that. I I don't get that. I'm finite. You're finite. but he is not limited by our time schedule. His nature, he's eternal, and he's infinite. So, I think the conclusion I would draw from that verse would be that he prescribed a time for the birth of Christ and the death of Christ, and certainly he has prescribed a time for the return of Christ. That's, what I would, that's, a, that's an application for that. He did this in the fullness of time, he had the death of Christ at a time, and he had... One day he's going to have the return of Christ at the, the right time. And then finally, go to verse 9. Are you back in 2 Peter, or did you ever leave there? 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Peter gives another reason we can be certain of the certainty of the return of Christ. He's giving assurance now. That's what he's doing, just giving assurance assurance from God's word assurance from Old Testament history examples of when God has done this before in New Testament teachings as well he's done it uh, he's done it in now in the nature of God and understanding God and how he views time. And now we come to verse 9. Wow, verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, and as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Interesting verse. So it's verse, let's just break it down here. Look at this. God, God's patience waits. God's patience waits. Long-suffering. Some say he's slow, but no, he is long-suffering. He waits. He's patient towards you. You're learning some things about God's character here, but he's never slow. He's never slack. And don't use the word he tarries. Tarries just sounds like he's indecisive. He tar- the Lord tarries. No, he's not tarrying. He's not tarrying. The Lord is not slow, and he's not slack, and he's certainly not tarrying he's very decisive about his return. He's not slow in his patience because he's not indifferent to world affairs. He knows what's going on in our world. Oh gosh, the heart of God grieves over our world. He's not slow. When he breaks into history, though, get this, folks, when he breaks into history, there will be no second chances. Understand that. There will be no second chances. You will be confirmed. You will be confirmed in your belief or your unbelief. That is is important. It's all over. It's all over. When you die, or when you leave this world, or when he comes, if you're alive then, that is the end. No more, this is the day of salvation talk. No more, Jesus died on the cross for your sins talk. That message will be eternal, no doubt, but that will not be an effective message to you at that moment. It's final. It is final. Those in unbelief will face eternal punishment. There's a scene in Matthew 25 where Jesus comes in his glory and all the angels are with him. He sits on his throne and all the nations are gathered around him and uh, he separates the sheep and the goats. Sheep are believers, goats are unbelievers. And he says to the, he's, he gives directions to the sheep and to the goats. And he says in verse 41 of Matthew 25, he will say to those on his left, to the goats, to the unbelievers, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So there's no second chance. There's no second chance. He is waiting, we're told in verse 9, for people to repent. He's waiting for that. He's waiting for that. He's holding, 2 Peter 3, 9, he's holding back the fury of his wrath. That is the general gist of that verse. That's just the general gist of that verse, okay, what I just told you. He does not desire to judge in that sense. In fact, there's a verse in Ezekiel 18, he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He takes no pleasure in that. But there's one thing this verse cannot be teaching. This verse cannot be teaching universalism. This verse cannot be teaching that God never judges anybody. Because he does. We saw that all through 2 Peter. We saw where verse after verse after verse, where hell is reserved for those false teachers and their ungodly lifestyles. We saw that all through that verse, all through that chapter. We see that in verse 10 of this chapter, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the earth and its works will be burned up. We know God is going to judge some people. So this verse cannot be saying that God is not going to judge anybody. How can it be that God is not willing for any to perish when he has told us that some will perish? That's the question. This is a a tough verse, okay? How can it be that God is not willing for any to perish when he has told us that some will? Because we know Peter is not talking about what liberal theology teaches, and that's universalism, which says everybody is going to heaven. We know this isn't teaching that. Some people have said, well, this just talks about God's desire. His desire is that people... Not be judged. And that's a true statement, but I don't think that's what this is talking about. The context is what's important here. Look once again very closely with me in our remaining three minutes on this very important topic. I don't know how I'm going to do this, but in verse nine, notice this the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but notice, is patient toward you. Who's he talking to? Is patient toward you. He's talking to believers. He's patient toward you believers. He's talking to his people. The Lord is patient toward his people. Understand what I'm saying? The Lord is patient towards those who belong to him. The all there in verse 9, therefore, would be interpreted, not wishing for any to perish, but for all the Lord's people. To come to repentance. I'm talking here about the doctrine of election, that very comfortable, we all agree with, doctrine of election. Easy to understand doctrine of election. But that's what I'm talking about here, because that's what I believe is being talked about here. He's talking about those whom he has chosen before the foundation of the world, and that they are yet to still come to salvation. That's who he's talking about. He's talking about his people who have not come to repentance yet. Those whom he has chosen before the foundation of the world and there still has not been an opportunity for them to, have to come to salvation yet in, history, in time. Different, difficult doctrine. I can't get my head around it all the time. I never, never can. What am I talking? I never can get my head around it. But I believe the Bible teaches it. I'm not going to distort it, and I encourage you not to distort it either, just to fit into your mind. It's a tough doctrine. Just accept that. You must believe, yes. But the reason you can believe in the first place is because He chose you before the foundation of the world. John. Chapter 10, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice and they come to me. They are the ones my Father has given to me. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about here. And this is a doctrine of mercy people say god's not fair god chooses listen you do not look for fairness in the doctrine of election just get that out of your vocabulary do not look for fairness in the doctrine of election if god was fair to everyone we would all go to hell we're good it's mercy that he chooses anybody it's mercy that he puts his love on anybody He is patient. So this verse is saying he is patient toward those he has chosen to be saved because it is not will that his chosen perish. God, why? God is withholding his wrath waiting for them to repent and be saved. And that is who he is waiting for. Listen, God is patient with you. You didn't know you were chosen. You you don't get hung up on this. We don't know... We know we're chosen because we believe. But you were wandering around out there one time like I was, and you're just rebellious. You didn't care for God. You didn't care for his word. You didn't care for Christianity. You didn't care for nothing related to God. You were part of the ungodly. But God broke through. But God, who was rich in his mercy, Ephesians 2 said, opened your blind eyes and brought you to salvation. And you repented and you trusted in him. He is continually patient toward the elect, all those who will eventually turn from their sin and turn to Jesus for salvation. And someday he will return. He's going to return, Peter is saying here in Second Peter, he is going to return when the last of the elect have come to salvation. I don't know who the elect are. You don't know who the elect are. The only way you know if you're elect or not is if you believe in Christ and you're walking in faith with Him. That's the only way you know if you're the elect. It's interesting to me, we are to preach the gospel to the world, to everybody, because some of those are the elect whom God is working in their heart to bring them to salvation. Turn to Acts 18, and we'll close with this. Acts 18, verses 9 and 10. Acts 18, verses 9 and 10. Paul is... You know what? I can't remember what city he's in. Corinth. Yeah, Corinth. Paul is in Corinth. Corinth was not a good place for Paul. He was always discouraged with Corinth. But Paul is there... He's discouraged verse 9 and the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision do not be afraid any longer but Paul this is what I want you to do go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you for notice for I have many people in this city you just go on preaching they will come to faith through your preaching. You are an instrument. You don't know who the elect are, but I do. You go and you keep preaching. That person sitting next to you on the airplane, that person in your neighborhood, that person in your classroom, that person in your family, They may be the elect of God, the one that God has you in their life for the very reason that you would share the gospel with them. God, the means to anybody coming to salvation is by hearing. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. God has chosen that way to do things. (laughs) He wants us to be the instrument. Just preach the gospel. It's the power of God into salvation. And one day, when the last of the elect have put their faith and trust in Jesus, he will return. I don't know when that's going to be. It could be two years, it could be 2,000 years, who knows? But the Lord is not slow about his promise. Listen, if you're here this morning and you do not know Christ, this doctrine of election is, don't be concerned about it. If you want to know if you're elect, just believe in the gospel. Just believe on the gospel. It's been presented to you. It's been shown to you. You are under the judgment of God. Your sin separates you from God. Your sin will send you to hell. But Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he took the wrath of God in your place. He lived the perfect life that none of us could ever live. And by faith and trust in him, God imputes that righteousness that we all need to our lives and looks at us the way he looks at Christ. Man, that's a deal, that is a deal. Josh brought it up this morning, the robe, the robe song. Man, we get his robes. He gets our sinful robes. We get his righteousness. Anyway, let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, God, for these great truths that we looked at this morning. Big truths, big, big God truths, size truths. We are just overwhelmed when we just stop and think about them, Father but you are truly a merciful God. I pray if anyone is here this morning, they don't know Christ, that this would be the day of salvation for them. They would not wait another day. They don't know if they'll live another day. Father, we are hearing of people dying all the time around us, loved ones, and it's just incredible, the sicknesses and disease and accidents and all those things, and we don't know the day. Well, a day may bring forth for any of us God, I pray that none in this room this morning would die and fall into the judging hands of the living God because they did not repent. We praise you and thank you for this day, Father. We're so grateful for your word. We're so grateful that we can gather here this morning and, and look at it together. We love you in Jesus' name, amen.